Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, October 16th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Last night's dueling presidential town halls. Plus, social media's struggle to stop misinformation. But first, today's one big thing. Will the Affordable Care Act survive a new Supreme Court? Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings wrapped yesterday after four days of Senate questioning. She's expected to be confirmed by Election Day. Sam Baker is Axios' Supreme Court expert, and I talked to him about what we can expect from the new court. We have been living with a majority conservative court for an incredibly long time. It is going to become noticeably more conservative. You will probably see more skepticism of ambitious progressive legislation should any pass. You will see more power handed to the president and the executive branch. Sam, you're also the healthcare editor here at Axios. What does the future of the Affordable Care Act look like with this new court? So the case that the court is going to hear and the arguments are November 10th, a week after the election, There's two steps to it. The first step, they have to decide again whether the individual mandate is unconstitutional, whether it has become unconstitutional since the last time. Let's say for the sake of argument that they say that it has and they throw that out, which I think is pretty likely. Then the question becomes, if they do throw out the mandate, is, okay, how much of the rest of the law do we have to throw out? Judge Barrett did not say much during this week's hearing. One of the things of consequence that she did say Her words were, there is always a presumption of severability. So if you're going to throw out one piece, unless things are so interconnected, you try to only throw out that piece in isolation. So if you picture severability being like a Jenga game, it's kind of if you pull one out, can you pull it out while it all stands? Or if you pull two out, will it still stand? I think a lot of people who are paying attention to what politicians are saying are hearing about pre-existing conditions and could be very worried that if they had a pre-existing condition, they would not be able to have health insurance after the Supreme Court rules on this. How likely is that? It is on the table. The Trump administration is going to walk into the front doors of the Supreme Court on November 10th and say, throw out protections for pre-existing conditions. That's what they want. The scope of the implications of that, if it happened, would just be catastrophic. And that's why we pay so much attention to it. That doesn't necessarily make it the most likely outcome, but it is probably more likely that the court would only throw out part of the law, potentially just the mandate, which I think if you're a Democrat up against a 6-3 Supreme Court and they only throw out a thing that has already been nullified, you'd take that as a win. We are very fortunate that Sam Baker not only knows a lot about the Supreme Court, but is also our healthcare editor, where he's just talking about both of those things. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Nyla. We'll be back in 15 seconds with Trump and Biden's dueling town halls. Welcome back to Axios Today. If you tuned into the dueling town halls last night for our presidential candidates, it was really a study in the complete contrasts of these two candidates. Margaret Taleb is Axios's White House and politics editor. Margaret, this was a real split-screen version of America, wasn't it? I was telling Mike Allen as we were watching it, I said, you know, this is kind of like one of those choose-your-own-ending, you know, murder, uh, you know. Choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, because you could, like, watch these two town halls and see what two completely different alternatives might lay ahead of you. If you tune into Biden... It's very calm. It's collegial. It's kind of boring. 
You would raise another, as it goes up to, uh, let me get you the exact number here, about another 200, excuse me, uh, $92 billion. And you switch channels and you're watching Trump and it's explosive and you can't look away. And he's, you know, sort of <laughs> careening from one provocative conversation to the other. It's very evasive. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. It's much more personality driven than substance driven. Having said that, we did actually learn a little bit from each of the town halls. We saw a real parallel in terms of evading an important question and probably the politics for doing it. This is about both candidates trying to minimize votes that they lose that could be crucial to them in the closing days. Margaret Talib is Axios' White House and politics editor doing the split screen for all of us. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks, Nyla. Well, Twitter and Facebook came under fire this week for their latest attempts to stop misinformation. The New York Post published an article about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. And there are questions about its sourcing and questions about the origin of the material that the Post used to report the story. Scott Rosenberg is Axios's managing editor of technology. He says the platforms were intending to stop the spread of the story as they worked to judge the article's validity. This story was going to become a big deal no matter what Facebook and Twitter did because President Trump likes this story and was going to make sure that everyone knew about it. Misinformation experts say that Twitter and Facebook actually did the right thing. The problem in the past has been that when the platforms have tried to stop sharing of misinformation, they've stepped in too late. It doesn't do a lot of good to stop people from sharing a video after 9 million people have seen it. So in this case, they decided to move fast and then try to figure out what to do next. Were there good options for the social media companies with this story? I think they're in a real bind now because ever since 2016, everyone has been telling them you must do a better job stopping misinformation from spreading. This story had all the earmarks of what they call a hack and leak, where someone just takes a big pile of data. In 2016, it was the DNC emails and dumps it on the Internet and turns it into a huge story before anyone can verify it. And so in this case, they moved fast, but it feels to a lot of people like censorship. And we're all reminded of the fact that we're getting our news from these very large and very unaccountable social media platforms that weren't really designed for the distribution of news. That's not really what Facebook was created for. And it's not a role that they've actually built their platforms to do well. And I think they're trying to do better, but it's really difficult. And that is going to continue to be an issue and a problem well past the election. Scott Rosenberg is Axios' managing editor of technology, joining us from Berkeley, California. Thank you, Scott. Thanks a lot. Late last night, Twitter announced a change to its policy, saying it will no longer remove hacked content unless it was placed there by hackers, and that it would label tweets with context instead of blocking links altogether. Before we go today, we wanted to share some of your stories about what it's been like to vote in this election. Amy Sufka in Columbus, Georgia, is voting by mail for the first time this year because of the pandemic. And she told me it can be really easy to make a mistake. 
The one that was the most concerning was at the top of the ballot, there is a little strip that you have to tear off. I never saw in all the instructions that it listed in there, if you can get disqualified by something like that, that kind of concerns me. Another listener, Caroline Herman, is from King County, Washington, but lives in Germany. And it turns out her community let her vote by email. For me, I would just wish that the same experience that I had could be for everyone. Tomorrow, we're doing a deep dive into the history of voting in this country and why it's been so hard for so many citizens to vote. It's a special Saturday episode in your feed, and I hope you'll join us. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Axios co-founder, Mike Allen. Sarah K. Helanigu is our executive editor. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. We're also produced by Carol Wu, Kara Schillen, Nuria Marquez-Martinez, and Naomi Shaven. Alex Sugiyara is our sound engineer. At Pushkin, our executive producers are Lital Malad and Jacob Weisberg. You can write to us at podcasts at axios.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs>